Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read They Can't Kill Us All by Wesley Lowry. We are beginning chapter one, which is entitled Ferguson, A City Holds Its Breath. On our previous episode of Rockford Reading Daily, as we begun They Can't Kill Us All by Wesley Lowry, we learned that Wesley Lowry was a journalist, that he covered the murder of Mike Brown and Ferguson, and he also went around to a, multiple other places in, in the direct aftermath of the murder of Mike Brown and Ferguson, where people were have been killed by police or some type of racially motivated murder had taken place. And we spoke about how in each of these different areas he goes to, there are unique circumstances that they are facing that's important for that sh- that sort of shifts or alters what the people protesting are advocating for or advocating against. And we spoke about the importance of having an intimate understanding of the issues that exist in your your locale. And we also spoke about the the some of the things that led to Mike Brown being the exception instead of the rule when these police killings happen as far as public outcry goes. And we spoke about some of the things that led to or some of the extenuating circumstances that preceded Mike Brown becoming the exception and what those circumstances look like. And again, for the we just read the introduction. So for the most part, we didn't get too in-depth with anything and just a little bit of a, a summary of all the things we can expect to to read throughout this book. And I stated in our last episode that the reason I chose They Can't Kill Us All is because, for one, it is it sort of picks up where Hinterland left off on, where Hinterland was speaking about Ferguson, Missouri, spoke about some of the vigilante attacks on police officers, and that time period is exactly where this book picks up at. And also, on September 1st, 2022, which at the time of recording this is just a week ago, Peter Yeager was killed by the Rockford Police Department inside of his home. And in that same week, Donovan Donovan Lewis was murdered by police officers in Ohio. And so this book being so focused on police violent police terrorism in the form of murders, I felt that this would be appropriate for us to begin reading next. So please share the episode, please share the link to this episode on whichever social media platform you may frequent the most. And remember at eight o'clock every morning, we put out an episode of Rafa Reading Daily on Spotify, on Pocket Cast, on Anchor, on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, Facebook, anywhere audio is available. This podcast series is available for consumption. Okay. Ferguson, a city holds its breath. Chapter one. The first time I saw the name Michael Brown was on Instagram. I typically checked Instagram once or twice a week to see old college friends partying or journalism colleagues posting from airports en route to an assignment. As I scrolled through my feed on the afternoon of August 9th, my fingers stopped when I reached a series of videos uploaded by Brittany Noble, a local news reporter in St. Louis whom I consider an older sister. The clip showed a disheveled woman screaming, crying. The police, she said, I killed her firstborn son. Over her shoulder, a crowd had gathered. I first met Brittany, as she always teasingly assisted we pronounce it, 
at one of the annual gatherings of the National Association of Black Journalists. We were then both job-hungry college students and quickly hit it off while discussing the feedback we'd received on our resumes from recruiters and comparing invites to the conference's nightly receptions. Five years later, we remained part of a core group of friends from those conferences who stayed in semi-frequent touch as we tried to navigate entry-level journalism jobs. Brittany had graduated a few years earlier than me, and after bouncing around several smaller market television stations, she settled into a gig with KMOV, the CBS affiliate in St. Louis, which was both her hometown and that of her fiancé, Mike. As they prepared for the wedding, they decided to live in a racially diverse town not far from the city, Ferguson. Two years after taking the gig in Missouri, Brittany was working weekends, giving her Friday nights to the job, and then, after a few hours of sleep, heading back out into the field for early Saturday and Sunday morning live shots. It's the type of thankless work done by many young reporters, but she was glad to be back home. The only thing bigger than Brittany's smile is her drive, and that ambition meant she was often looking for a way to stand out on the job, constantly searching for a small scoop or a neighborhood feature that her competition might have overlooked. It didn't hurt that she had connections. Her mother, before she retired, had been one of the highest-ranking black women in the history of the St. Louis Police Department. Her soon-to-be father-in-law ran a prominent black church in the city. On many days, Brittany's email and voicemail were full of story tips and ideas. Not all of the leads panned out, but it wasn't rare for her to come up with a unique angle or tidbit. Much like my own experience at the Globe, working general assignment can be a mixed bag. One day you're covering a high school graduation, the next you're camped out beside crime scene tape. And then, of course... There are the officer-involved shootings. Brittany's first came on July 1, 2012, at her first job at a station in Saginaw, Michigan. A homeless black man, Milton Hall, had been shot and killed by the police in the parking lot of a shopping plaza. The officers responded to a 911 call about a man who had stolen a cup of coffee from a convenience store. When they arrived, they encountered Hall, who was carrying a knife, and they began to argue with him. The 49-year-old had a history of mental illness and had been living on the street. Eight officers reported to the scene, and they told investigators that when they arrived, Hall threatened a female officer with a knife and closed in within a few feet of her. After a standoff of several minutes, the officers, who had formed a semicircle around Hall as he staggered forward, opened fire. With traffic driving past and several bystanders in the parking lot, the officers shot 47 bullets in total, with 11 of them riddling Hall's body. The shooting was caught on cell phone video and soon was playing on loop on CNN. Quote, The community was outraged. They said they were going to protest and demonstrate and blow the whole place up if these officers didn't get indicted. End quote. Brit- Brittany recalled to me years later. Quote, And then the officers didn't get indicted and nothing happened. End quote. And... I think I have a reflection here. That is, and that's so typical of what happens is that people will, when these these shootings happen initially, there is this sort of this sort of communal outcry at times, and that communal outcry can come in multiple forms. Now, a lot of times, it comes on via social media, 
in 2012, that might not have been as likely of the case, but it would have been beginning to be more prevalent on social media. And often a lot of people think that's enough to just vocalize that they're upset, to give an interview saying they're upset, to give a sermon saying they're upset, to have a conversation at a dinner table saying that they're upset, to make a social media post and say that they're upset. But when it's time to do some type of action that can be, that can hold the powers accountable that perpetuate these things, people become silent, people become invisible, people disappear, people aren't ready to walk, have that same type of walk that they had or walk the same way that they talked. And I think that that is the the infancy uh, of struggle is first the doing the talking. And at some point it gets to a place where you realize that talking is not going to be enough, that if walking does not precede, excuse me, if walking does not Precede, I don't know, not precede, but precede comes before. If walking does not come after the talking, then the talking is pointless. Uh, barking is in a is not a defense mechanism if there is never any threat of a bite happening after the bark. And so that's sort of what stands out to me after reading that. Also what stands out to me is just all of these different incidents of of police terrorism that exist and that have happened, all these macroaggressions that have happened. and Again, I've said this before and I'll say this again. Three times a day in this country, people are shot and killed by the police department. Three times a day on average. That averages up to over a thousand people a year being shot and killed by the police departments in this country. And if we were collectively, if we collectively struggled back each time these things happened, we would see these numbers begin to lower and we would see that we would see the some type of change begin to happen. Even and again, the first step in that change is the officers being held accountable. And a majority of officers do not get held accountable. I think it's like zero point one percent of officers or something like very small percentage of officers actually get arrested and convicted, uh, arrested and charged with the crime. And even less than that, uh, actually get convicted of a crime after they kill a member of the community. Let's continue reading. Before Ferguson, this storyline was as common as it was hidden. A community flies into rage after a questionable police shooting. Leaders hold vigils and marches. Figureheads call for accountability. And then, almost as quickly as the tragedy began, It ends. Everyone but the grieving family moves on with their lives until the next time a radio dispatcher puts out the call. Need backup. Shots fired. Officer involved. When that call came on August 9th, 2014, Brittany was in St. Louis. Having worked her early morning Saturday shift, she was across town preparing for her engagement photos. Quote, Hey, Brittany, you see that police shot somebody in Ferguson? End quote. Her fiancé called out before handing her the phone so she could see for herself. Perhaps he was already tiring of the engagement photos because he knew full well what would happen next. In an industry dominated by white reporters and editors, young black journalists are told early and often that they've got to go above and beyond, showing up unasked for a weekend shift, coming in early and staying late on the weekdays, and always being ready, at a moment's notice, to drop everything and run toward the story. For two years, that was what Brittany, one of the only black reporters at her station and one of just a few dozen in St. Louis, a major media market, had been doing. 
She often felt overlooked or underappreciated. But if she kept doing her job, if she kept chasing and getting, quote, the story, end quote, she knew they couldn't ignore her and her work forever. Brittany fired off an email to her bosses asking if they had anyone headed to the scene. When they didn't respond, she called a producer directly. Quote, you need me to come in? End quote, she asked. Minutes later, she landed the first major scoop of Ferguson, the emotional reaction of Michael Brown's mother as she arrived at the scene. As Brittany raced across town, residents of the Canfield Green Apartment Complex began flooding the streets. The shooting had happened on a quiet side street in a spot surrounded by four-level apartment buildings. As the crowds gathered, others took to windows and porches, looking down at the chaos developing below. Within minutes after the shooting, word spread through the surrounding apartments and beyond that Brown's hands were up in the air when the fatal shots were fired by Officer Darren Wilson, who had encountered Brown and his friend Dorian Johnson while responding to a call about two young men, matching their description, who had just been involved in the robbery of a nearby liquor store. As police officers scrambled to secure the scene, an enraged, agitated crowd was quickly gathering. Why is Brown's body still out there? Why was he shot and killed in the first place? And why do we keep hearing that he had his hands up? Quote, get us several, get us several more units over here, end quote. One of the responding officers demanded over the police radio, quote, there's going to be a problem, end quote. Johnson and Brown had entered Ferguson Market and Liquor at 11.53 that morning with Brown, the younger of the two men, grabbing a $34 box of Swisher Sweets and attempting to walk out. The employee working behind the counter that day told Brown that he had to pay for the smokes, and in response, the team grabbed the man by the collar and shoved him. One of the store's security cameras captured the violent exchange, an 11-second video clip that will be the last living image of Brown. But in the hours and days after Brown was shot and killed by Officer Dan Wilson, none of the residents of Ferguson knew about the liquor store robbery. That information wouldn't come out for days, when still frame images from surveillance cameras were released by Ferguson PD. In fact, in those early days, police refused to release any information or answer any question of substance. Why had Brown been shot and killed? Who was the officer involved? What was the potential threat to the officer that prompted his use of deadly force? But a vacuum of information always finds a way to be filled, especially in a crowded apartment complex full of dozens of people who claim to have seen the struggle and the shooting. The Canfield Green Apartments are a cluster of a half a dozen cream-colored buildings with green and brown trim. The 37-acre complex contains more than 414 apartments, one- and two-bedroom units, for which Canfield's almost exclusively black residents fork over about $500 a month. It's a relatively low-income sliver of Ferguson, a city that is socioeconomically diverse. Residents complain of gang activity, of break-ins, and of their ears too frequently seizing at the sharp cackle of gunshots. During my first days on the ground at Ferguson, many Canfield residents believed that Brown, after being confronted by Wilson for jaywalking, had been shot in the back as he ran away. Dorian Johnson, Brown's friend who was with him when he was killed, claimed that after an initial struggle and gunfire, Brown ran away from Wilson, turned around, put his hands up, and shouted out, quote, don't shoot, end quote. Johnson ran away after Brown and Wilson began struggling, ducking behind a nearby vehicle as the fatal shots were fired. An even more inflammatory rumor, later proven untrue, was soon circulating throughout Ferguson. 
that Officer Wilson had stood over Brown's dying body and fired an execution shot in the dying teen's chest. For many of those first nights after Brown's death, people believed that there was video of the shooting, with rumors flying that officers had seized residents' cell phones to keep the videos from spreading, and there was anger about the number of bullets fired by Wilson. Why would, why would Wilson need to shoot Mike Brown six times? Why didn't he have a taser? Why did it take so long for Brown's body to be moved from the ground? Quote, I could see how the officer could be intimidated, but that ain't a reason to be gunned down, not nine times, not with your hands up, end quote, said Dwayne Finney, 36, a childhood friend of Brown's father and friend of the family, who was one of the first people I interviewed after arriving in Ferguson. Quote, I just put myself in Mike's shoes and like, your last seconds of life, you're getting executed by somebody who is supposed to be protecting and serving you, end quote. Quote, people are tired of being misused and mistreated, and this is an outlet for them to express their outrage and anger. Everyone is looking for an outlet to express their emotions, end quote. He told me on August 11th, two days after the shooting, quote, this is a reason. All the looting and what's going on, but people want to be heard and they don't know how to do it. So that's why they lash out, end quote. Quote, they're not trying to let this one get swept under the table, end quote. A friend of Finney's who had been standing alongside him while he spoke chimed in. Investigators would later conclude that Brown's hands were most likely not up and that the altercation began when the 18-year-old punched Darren Wilson after the officer, responding to the robbery call, attempted to stop him on the street. Whether Brown was attempting to surrender or attempting to attack Officer Wilson when the fatal shots were fired remains murky. The evidence shows that, quote, hands up, don't shoot, end quote, a national rallying cry, the chief chorus of the dead boy's defenders, was based on a falsehood. But as anger boiled into rage, no one in Ferguson could have known that yet. All right, let's take a moment to reflect. So I first want to address the 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 I'm trying to see what's the what's the what's the way I would want to frame this mm. okay so it was mentioned to us at the end of what we just read that Michael Brown most likely did not have his hands up before he was shot now I'm not sure where that st specifically comes from like is that from is that the forensic saying this is it the basically i would imagine if this information is coming out that whoever is saying this has some type of connection to the state and so i'm weary of any information that comes from the state especially when it involves incidents of police violence like this so my but but irregardless of that fact i think that what's important to point out is that the saying hands up don't shoot even though it may have gained prominence when after Mike Brown was murdered, black people have been espousing that ideology to their children for generations. And that's been a cultural concept for generations is hands up, don't shoot, you know, or even saying that hands up, my hands up, don't shoot, don't shoot hands up. And I think that it became more of a mainstream, this mainstream thing and became more of like a slogan for the struggle after Mike Brown. But it's important to remember that so many of the slogans that exist now or some of the thought processes that exist now that have become 
more mainstream thought because of social media, because of uh, the different younger generations rising, uh, 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 aging. A lot of those things have been cultural norms or cultural thoughts or cultural patterns of belief for generations. And hands up, don't shoot as one. You know, the same thing, just even this concept of being anti-police. For a lot of people, this is a new concept that has emerged, but there are specific cultures, especially the black culture where, black American culture where just being black, it almost becomes synonymous with being anti-police. It's more of a surprise when somebody is black and pro-police, even though that may not be what you, you know, you'll see in media, black people portraying cops and black police officer and family matters and all these different black actors and have played police officers. But the truth of the matter is that the black, especially in a city like Rockford, the black police officer is not the norm. It's the aberration. Now, is there anything else in here I wanted to? And then I think as far as the questions here, that's one of the the commonalities that happens after these, these, these acts of violence happen so often it is a question of why did this happen? Who did this? Uh, who did these things? Why did these? Uh, for example, instead of just putting up hypothetical questions, here in Rockford, we've seen that whenever someone is shot, they withhold the name of the police officer who did the shooting. One of the exceptions to that was when organizationally we released the name or found out the name of the man who had shot Tyrus Jones. But for the most part, the state withhold that inf- withholds that information. Uh, Peter Yeager was shot on September 1st of 2020. We sit here on September 6th, and his name has not been released to the public still. And I just think that when when Wesley Lowry talks about these unanswered questions the community has, that is one of these things that is typically done by the system. Okay, let's continue reading. We'll read one more section, then we'll wrap this episode up. They did know that the police in Ferguson looked nothing like them, an almost all-white force charged with serving and protecting a majority black city. They knew all too well about the near-constant traffic tickets that were being given and how often those tickets turned into warrants. And they knew that Mike Mike, the quiet kid who got his hair cut up the street on West Florescent and who was often seen walking around in his neighborhood, was dead. Quote, that could be any of us. That could have been me dead on the street, end quote screamed Carl Union, 27, a local DJ who refused to leave one of the early protests despite multiple rounds of heavy tear gas. Union said that when he saw the image of Brown's body in the street, he thought of his young daughter. When he heard that Brown had been shot by the police, he became angry and decided to join the protest. Quote, it's like we're not even human to them, end quote, Union said through tears. Mike Brown's body remained on the hot August ground for four and a half hours, a gruesome, dehumanizing spectacle that further traumatized the residents of Canfield Drive and will later be cited by police officials as among their major mistakes. For some, first in Ferguson and later around the nation, the spectacle of Brown's body cooling on the asphalt conjured images of the historic horrors of lynchings, the black body of a man robbed of his right to due process and placed on display as a warning to other black residents. If the police were willing not only to kill Mike Brown, Residents of Canfield Drive would ask me as I interviewed them, but also to let his body sit out that way, what would they be willing to do to the rest of us? Within an hour of the shooting, word had traveled to Michael Brown's family, his mother, stepfather, and father, 
who each individually made their way to Canfield Drive. Police had sealed off the block, causing a bottleneck of dozens and eventually hundreds of people who began to gather at the cor corner of West Florissant Avenue. That was where Brittany and the videographer she had with her parked their news van and where she first approached Leslie McSpaden, the slain boy's mother. Another reporter at Brittany's station was supposed to interview the family, so initially Brittany focused on getting reaction quotes from enraged local residents. But Brown's mother was standing just a few feet away, and it didn't look like any of the reporters were talking to her. Finally, Brittany asked one of the residents she had interviewed, a cousin of Brown's, if he would make an introduction. Initially, she didn't even bring her cameraman with her, assuming that her colleague had already interviewed the dead teen's mother. Instead, Brittany thought she'd upload the video to Instagram, since that was where she had first heard the story. Quote, you didn't have to shoot him eight times, end quote. McSpaden exclaimed to Brittany, quote, you just shot all through my baby's body, end quote. Brittany ended up working late into the night, transmitting live shots for every newscast, ending with the 11.30 p.m., and watching as the crowds that gathered became more and more frustrated and angry. The Ferguson and St. Louis County Police has sent scores of officers, some in full ride gear and tactical vehicles, to deal with the growing crowds and to hold them back as they attempted to investigate for themselves the scene of the shooting. All of this is pretty standard for the scene of a police shooting, police, protesters, angered residents and families. But the scale of the immediate response from both the community and law enforcement signaled that perhaps Ferguson would be different. Quote, this was a scene that I had never seen before, a heartbreak that I had never felt before from the people I was interviewing, end quote. Okay, um, let me, I think I'm good. Let me find my spot. Sorry, I had to step away for a second. Okay, quote, I just felt different. Something wasn't right. This wasn't the typical police shooting scene, end quote. And then, after four hours, as midday turned to late afternoon, officers finally removed Brown's body from the asphalt. They did not address the crowds who were hungry for answers after spending most of their Saturday hearing inflammatory rumors. Quote, People were like, after all of that, they're just going to leave, end quote, Brittany said. Quote, they're not going to say anything. These people were hurt, end quote. As the police began to leave, church groups started walking down Canfield Drive, following the still hysterical Leslie McSpade into the spot where crimson blood still stained the ground. When they arrived, the group circled around McSpade and her husband and began to pray, sing, and hug. Some were older folks from the church up the road. Others were younger residents who poured out of the Canfield apartments. What had been a rambunctious crowd had composed itself to create a vigil for a violent death. But the tranquility didn't last. As the prayer group began to break up, the residents of Canfield began to yell. Prayer was not going to fix this. Neither was singing. The police had to answer for this. Why was Mike Brown dead? Why had his body been left out for so long? And when will we get answers? Amid the shouting, someone lit a dumpster on fire. While moments earlier desperate prayers were being sent above, now it was the flash of flames floating into the night air. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. And I think that's probably a good spot to stop this episode. Let's see. And we got a, got a few pages in. 
So let's have a reflection. What immediately stands out to me is the pain of Leslie McSpaden, the mother of Mike Brown. Even though it's not written in here, what I know to be true also is the pain of the father, the stepfather, and all of the loved ones. The the pain of the pain and the the grief and you know, it's not even simply enough to to just isolate this one incident. It's as black people in this country, this has happened to us at such an enormous rate with such regularity that when it happens, it's never this isolated feeling. It's never this isolated event. You know, she had this young black son, this specter of this of this violent death, the specter of this state sanctioned murder looms over his head from the moment that he's born. There's statistics that can tell that story. There's past history that can tell this story. And so once it manifests like this, it's, it is like, it's almost like the being in the midst of a prophecy being fulfilled or something like that. This thing, this inevitability is one of the things that I speak about as being a key factor in understanding these issues is, you, is that you have to understand the inevitability that these state-sanctioned murders, these state-sanctioned executions will continually happen. And I think the next thing is thinking about the families of people that I've interacted with who are in, in Rockford who have experienced these things as well. Thinking about the mother of Jovan Fresco and the stepfather of Jovan Fresco. Thinking about the, the brother and the cousins and the loved ones, the children of Jovan Fresco. Thinking about the same thing for Carrie Blake and for Eddie Patterson and Shannon Graves, Little Mike Sago, multiple people whose families I, I don't have. Each relationship, of course, is its own unique one. I think that probably the family I've been the closest to is Jovan Fresco's family and the family of Tyrus Jones. And I think that the reason for that is both of the, they both have ongoing situations that have, Tyrus Jones was shot while he was running away in 2020. And it was at the very genesis of my, of my entry into this struggle for against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice, and I'll always associate my my genesis into this struggle with the shooting of Tyrus Jones and with the family and the loved ones of Tyrus Jones, and seeing the strength that they displayed and seeing the the strength that they continue to to display and the fight that it took to not allow what happened to Tyrus Jones to be swept under the rug or to be ignored and. And so we see that also. And then, and so, and then with Jovan Fresco, he was murdered by Metro enforcement agents, security guards within this, within Rockford, Illinois. And his family is still in the process six years later of trying to get the man, the men who were responsible for his murder to be, to have a trial. And so we've gone to court dates still for, for that. And so I, I always just, I can't imagine being in these situations and, and getting that call or getting that text message or or seeing your child and, and, and the reality that you have become a part of this, this community within our society of people who not only, A, have lost a loved one or a child to violent death, but also, B, have lost them to violent death at the hands of, of police officers. 
and then the the strength that it takes to be these these women. A lot of times, it is women who do these speaking. You know that that, that speak and articulate these emotions, and that have this passion and are in passion when talking about the things that they're enduring after their children have been murdered. And so we see and hear Leslie McSpaden doing that. And I've watched as the mother of Tyrus Jones got in front of the camera and gave speeches. I watched as the mother of Jovan Fresco gets in front of the camera and gives speeches and talks to news reporters and gives speeches and even gives emotional support to other women who have endured these things as well. And so I just think that 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 strength really stands out. And that makes me think of Sister Citizen and and some of the things we read, women, race, and class, or sex, race, and class. I believe it was called sex, race, you know, women, race, and class. But the 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 ex- unique experiences that women and specifically black women go through in this society because of the things that their black children go through in this society. They, these are all things that stand out to me. So we're going to wrap this episode up here. We will be back tomorrow to continue reading They Can't Kill Us All, the struggle for this, the story of the struggle for black lives by Wesley Lowry. And I will holler at you in 24 hours. <laughs>